Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 167 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. As usual, if you'd like to look at the lectionary that Peter and Alistair are using for these talks, you can find that down there in the show notes. With that, we hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. And we also have uh, joining us remotely, Alistair Roberts. Uh, And today we're discussing the readings for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost in the year 2018. That's this coming Sunday, September 23rd. And the readings for this coming Sunday are Jeremiah 11, verses 18 through 20, just a small section of Jeremiah 11. James 3, uh, 13 through chapter 4, verse 10. And then another section of Mark 9, Mark 9, verses 30 to 37. Uh, we'll start with the uh, Jeremiah passage, the Old Testament passage, and just to, wanted to put the few verses that are included in the reading into context. Of course, Jeremiah, just to give, give the big context, Jeremiah is prophesying uh, from Jerusalem uh, during the time of the uh, collapse of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, and the invasions of Nebuchadnezzar. He's remaining in Jerusalem while some other Jews have been uh, deported off to Babylon. While Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem, Ezekiel's already in Babylon, Daniel's already in Babylon. In fact, by the time that Jeremiah is prophesying concerning uh, the future of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and how they, they'll find a safe haven in Babylon, by that time Daniel is already elevated to the position, the high position that he has in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So you've got this two front um, in, in the, the prophets, you have this two fronts of prophecy, but they're working together and the messages are somewhat different because they're focusing on different, or they're coming from different places and they're focusing on different things, but uh, they're, they're happening simultaneously. Uh, Jeremiah is prophesying while Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon and while Daniel is, prof- is writing and also living in the court. Um, Jeremiah 11 is a prophecy about the broken covenant and the curses of the covenant that are going to come on Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, The covenant is summarized in terms of worship of the one true God. And uh, the fact that uh, Judah has fallen into idolatry means that they've broken that covenant and the curses of the covenant are going to come on them. Uh, Interestingly, Jeremiah uses uh, the word, word, word or plural words repeatedly in different contexts or voice. Israel uh, is, uh, shows their proper response, I should say, to the Lord's uh, words is to hear His voice. When they don't listen to His voice, when they don't keep His words, then verse 8 says that His words are going to come on them. He brings His words, the words of cursing on them. So the words, the words of God are effective regardless. Uh, they're either effective for a guide to Judah's life and they listen and obey, or the words come down on their heads and in the form of curses. So uh, that's the general context, and we get to uh, what uh, Jeremiah says in verses 18 through 20, which is the particular reading for this week. 
This is one of Jeremiah's personal pleas uh, to the Lord or about his situation. He's talking about his own situation. Uh, and uh, he uses a couple of different images to describe what he is within Jerusalem. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter. Obvious uh, Christological overtones of that. Uh, he talks about a plot or a conspiracy that uh, people want to cut down the olive tree uh, and uh, destroy it. And um, he, in context, he's the one who's the tree that is going to be cut down and its fruit is going to be destroyed. Uh, and he's not going to bear any more fruit. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. And his prayer to the Lord is that the Lord would hear, notice, and would judge. It's a prophecy, uh, um, somewhat surprisingly, when uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? One of the options is Jeremiah. Uh, and that takes some adjustment in our conception of the kind of ministry Jesus has. If, if he's like Jeremiah, then he's a, uh, a scathing prophet denouncing uh, the unfaithful people of God and also a prophet of doom, but also a suffering prophet. And I think that's the, that's the thing that's highlighted here. Uh, a lamb led to slaughter, obviously. Sounds like Jesus. Jesus is the tree that's cut down, uh, but Jesus uh, also looks for vindication from his father. The parallels with Isaiah 53 really are striking. I think you've mentioned a few of them. The fact that Christ is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The theme of the lamb led to the slaughter, the one who's cut off from the land of the living, who is denied his his fruit. And in all of those respects, it would seem that we see in the figure of Jeremiah an anticipation of what Christ will be, just as we see within the figure of the Son of Man um, in the way that it plays within Ezekiel and Daniel, uh, an anticipation of who Christ will be as the Son of Man. I find the connection between these figures interesting. I thought about the passage in Matthew where Jesus is compared with um, Jeremiah in various ways, or they suggest that a comparison with Jeremiah. And I found that very, a very striking connection, particularly looking in the immediate context where it's about Peter's discussion of, um, or Peter's bearing witness to Christ and then Christ's response about on this rock I will build my church etc and then looking back at the context of Jeremiah 1 where it talks about Jeremiah himself being set up as a fortified city and an iron pillar and God forming his city upon that but also this war against the false city of Jerusalem and um, the fact that all these things arrayed against the prophet, against Jeremiah, will not prevail against him at the end of the chapter. And those parallels, again, suggest that there's a very deep Jeremiah-like character to the ministry of Christ more generally. Something that we see in his mourning over the city of Jerusalem, perhaps, especially in places like Matthew 23. Yeah, just a, one one more thing that might uh, one more parallel that might fill that out specifically from Jeremiah eleven. Uh, one of the things that Jeremiah warns about, the Lord warns about through Jeremiah, is the the idolatry. The idolatry of Judah has rendered the temple system ineffectual. Um, the Lord taunts Judah, tells them to go find their idols and their bales and see how they can help in the midst of this disaster why don't you check with your 
the gods you've been worshiping and see if, uh, if they can save you. But he also warns them, uh, verse 15 of Jeremiah 11, what right has my, has my beloved in my house when she has done so many vile deeds? Can the sacrificial flesh take away from your disaster so that you can rejoice? And that's just after the Lord has told Jeremiah to stop praying for uh, Jerusalem and Judah. So the idolatries of, of Judah have become so thoroughgoing and uh, intense that uh, the Lord has given them over to their idolatry. And there's, uh, it's, it renders the sacrificial system null and void. They, um, when they're walking in faithfulness to the Lord, then the Lord has given them ways to restore, to restore covenant fellowship. That's what the temple's for. But now that, that's, now that they're not walking in the ways of the Lord and they've turned earlier in the passage, it, it kind of uses the language of repentance, but they've turned back to the iniquities of their fathers. Uh, they repented of their faithfulness and they've gone back to the, the ways of their fathers. And because of that, the house has become uh, null and void. And, and just, that's, a, that's an important message of Jesus' ministry is the, the doom that lies over the temple. Uh, the fact that uh, the unfaithfulness of the temple leadership has undermined the effectiveness of this uh, of the system of uh, sacrifices and fellowship that the Lord set up. And that connection again is seen not just in a more general pattern of Christ's ministry, but in very specific allusions that he has to the words of Jeremiah. For instance, in Jeremiah 7, um, 11, right. has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? And then elsewhere within that same chapter, the emphasis upon the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And those same themes that are played out within the end of Matthew. Right. And I think that uh, the, the emphasis that uh, you're placing on uh, the parallels between Jesus and Jeremiah, I think that's, that helps to connect the Jeremiah passage with the gospel passage in Mark 9. Jeremiah is the, the weeping prophet, uh, and uh, Jesus is like Jeremiah in part in his suffering. Jeremiah is the, is the object of conspiracies. People are trying to kill him. Uh, he gets mistreated in various ways uh, and, uh, and also is uh, regularly crying out to the Lord for the Lord to intervene and the Lord to see and hear. Uh, the the uh, Mark passage, the Gospel reading uh, for this Sunday, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, is Mark 9, verses 30 to 37. Uh, that begins with a prophecy about the Son of Man being delivered into the hands of men, being killed, and then rising again on the third day. That prophecy is one of several that happens over the course of these chapters in, in Mark. But they begin, to, they begin to appear, those prophecies begin to appear after the turning point that happens in Mark, uh, end of Mark 8 and beginning of Mark 9 where Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, and then he immediately begins talking about the cross. To actually know who Jesus is and even what, even what it means for uh, Jesus to be the Messiah, uh, they need to know that the Messiah is, like Jeremiah, is going to be a suffering prophet. And that's, that's a, in Mark, that's a, a, a fairly significant shift, apparent shift at least, in the kind of ministry Jesus has been carrying out. Uh, I'm sure we've talked about this. I've I've forgotten what we've talked about in the past, but I'm sure we've talked about this when we've talked about Mark before. Jesus is the strong man. That's uh, Binding the Strong Man is a title of a commentary on Mark that was published uh, 25 years ago or so. Uh, Jesus is the strong man coming on the scene, casting out demons, triumphant in his ministry, uh, healing sicknesses, 
And then you get to the center of the gospel, and he's finally identified as the Christ, and then uh, he's no longer looks like the strong man. He looks like he's going to be given over to weakness, and he's going to be killed, and he's going to be abused, and he, others are going to tr- apparently triumph over him. Of course, the, 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 big, the big twist in Mark is that that is, in fact, the way, that's the way of the strong man. Jesus' most powerful act is not uh, the, acts of, the apparent acts of power that he, that he does early in the gospel, but uh, going to the cross and then overcoming death in the resurrection. And along with that, there's a certain strength that we see in Christ, the mode of Christ coming itself, that Christ comes not as this all-powerful divine figure upon the, the scene, but he comes as an infant, and his emphasis upon receiving the child in his name, receiving him, um, at the end of this chapter, I think is, is interesting to look at along that front, that the reception of Christ, the initial reception, is the reception of an infant, um, one who comes as the one who will be victorious over Satan and will deliver his people, but also one who comes in vulnerability, not apparent strength. But yet, there is a strength even in that mode of coming that we can often neglect. And more generally, how that is related to the test of hospitality that you find throughout the Gospels, perhaps particularly within the Gospel of Matthew, where Christ comes incognito in the form of the person who um, needs something to drink or needs shelter or someone who's sick and needs visitation, or as he comes in the ministry of his disciples to these various cities and whether they're received or not is a test according to which um, those cities will be judged on the last day. And here the figure of the child is presented as one such test. Um, the extent to which we take that literally I think is an important question, but to deny any of its literal force I think is to miss something of what is um, at stake here. Yeah, so the, uh, Jesus is uh, in part saying that uh, his way is a way of humility, his way is the way of the cross, uh, and therefore the way of self-humbling. And I'm using the term way because that, uh, all the way back at the beginning of Mark, that's the opening quotation. The Lord's going to send a messenger before the face of, his, of Jesus to prepare his way. And then throughout the gospel you have this, these references to the way at this point in the gospel in chapter 9, uh, there's a literal way that Jesus is on. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's describing the kind of path, the kind of life path that he's going to take once he gets to Jerusalem. That's a path of self-humbling uh, in death. And uh, uh, that's the way, of, the way of humility and suffering is the way of greatness. That's the, that's the issue that uh, the disciples are discussing along the way while they're uh, on the way with him. Verse 34, uh, on the way they were discussing which one of them was the greatest. And uh, Jesus takes a child and makes the child an object lesson in, that, uh, in the way of greatness. Jesus isn't canceling the category of greatness, but he is redefining what greatness is. And he's redefining it in terms of this way of humility and, uh, and, uh, and vulnerability and a way of apparent weakness that is in fact uh, revealing the power of God. And all of this can be related to the broader shape of the ministry of Christ that's described in places like Philippians 2, that Christ makes himself no reputation. And the very way that 
particularly children in such a world, would have had no reputation. And Christ taking on the form of a child in his coming is something to be related also to his movement towards the cross more generally. There's something that is fitting about the fact that he comes as a child and then moves towards the cross. Um, at both the beginning and the end of his life, he's made of no reputation. We can understand uh, the point being made in Mark in the categories that are given in the James passage, the epistle reading for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, James 3.13 through 4.10. And one of the ways that, uh, uh, one of the contrasts that uh, James is drawing is the contrast between earthly wisdom, which is demonic, it's proud, it uh, expresses jealousy, ambition, and envy. That's one way. That's the way that the disciples are going while they're on the way with Jesus. That's the way that they're tending is toward the way of ambition and competition with one another. Uh, but that, James says, is demonic wisdom that produces all this strife, anger, ultimately murder. Uh, the other way uh, that um, James describes, the other kind of wisdom that he describes is the way of, is a heavenly wisdom uh, that's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And that wisdom produces the fruit of righteousness when it's sown in peace. So um, Mark is laying out the way of Jesus, which is, that's a wisdom category, the idea of the way. And the way of Jesus is the way of humility, the way of uh, suffering. James is um, using uh, different, somewhat different categories, but he's describing the same kind of contrast. There's a, there are two kinds of wisdom. There's the apparent wisdom of uh, earthly, that's the earthly wisdom, and there's the wisdom that comes from heaven. And his focus upon the passions that lie at the root of all of this, I think, is very much in keeping with Christ's teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, but also, as we mentioned last week, the emphases of the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs that places such a strong um, stress upon the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom and humility coming before honor and before destruction, a man's heart being haughty, but humility preceding honor. These sorts of themes that are very much at the heart of that book. And then to recognize that within all these problems, these antagonisms that we have within society, these can be traced back to unruly hearts and our inability to have well-ordered and peaceful communities ultimately is related to issues like our coveting and our unruly desire. And that, I think, is again in keeping with the significance of the Tenth Commandment within the New Testament, whether in Paul's teaching in places like um, Romans 7 or in Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, that it presses the demand and the light of the law deeper into the soul of man. Yeah, I, think, I think it's important that, uh, to see that the, uh, the biblical response or the biblical answer to those unruly passions is not a kind of apatheia. It might, you might describe it as apatheia if you describe pathos, passions, in a pretty narrow sense of kind of uncontrolled desires. But the Bible describes, I mean, the Psalms, for example, uh, describe a, uh, the, life of a, uh, the life of a faithful man as a passionate life, as a life of desire. The issue is not, uh, I think there's been a tendency in some, uh, in some Christian traditions to think of the Christian 
ethic as one of suppression of desire, overruling desire with some other some other mental or uh, faculty, some other mental faculty or faculty of the soul. Um, I think that uh, uh, Jamie Smith is right that desires are really he's he's picking this up from Augustine, and I think Augustine is getting it from the Psalms and other places in the Bible. So the, the passions the the passions are. Uh, Good or, or desires are good, created by God, and uh, the goal is not to have weak desires. The goal is to have the desires directed in the right, in the right way. Uh, and the, the goal is also. It's interesting that the the antidote to those unruly passions in James four, uh, again, is not some discipline of suppression of desire. The rather, it's to turn our desires to the Lord. You, um, in other words, prayer is the antidote to these unruly passions. You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So he's introducing prayer, taking our desires to the Lord, and seeking uh, what we desire from Him. That's the answer to, to these unruly passions. It's not, it's not a suppression of desire. It's a uh, direction of desire to the right source, and it's a... Uh, it's a you know a training of desires that were for the right things. And his focus upon the double-minded, um, something that draws our attention back to James one. That figure is someone who does does not desire enough. He's someone who's wavering in his desire between two things. He can't. He doesn't have a clear apprehension of what is good, and he can't throw his heart into the pursuit of that. And you're talking about the significance of the investment of our passions in the pursuit of wisdom. And that's very much the image that we see within the book of Proverbs, where there are these two women that are calling out for the simple man's heart. And the question is, to whom are you going to give your heart? Mm -hmm. And it's it must be a gift of the heart. You can't just waver there or in in that simplicity or it will just harden into folly. Either you go in the way of wisdom or you'll be this double-minded person or this person that's just completely given over to folly. And that double-minded person is the person who cannot will strongly enough, whereas God is a God with whom there is no shadow of turning and there is no admixture of, of will. There's a pure and undivided will. And as a result, there is a... a flowing out from his word to the fruits of his word that we see within the first chapter that he brings us forth by the word of his truth so that we might be the first fruits of his creatures and the consistency and the um, strength and purity of God's will is to be the the measure and the model for our own passions that our passions should not just be like waves tossing us to and fro but should be directed firmly and surely towards their proper end. Yeah, I think uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 is uh, important in this connection. The translation is, um, is difficult, and there, in my New American Standard Bible has a, uh, two different translations, one in the margin. In the text it says, Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Um, the alternative in the marginal in the margin is the spirit which he has made to dwell in us jealously desires us. Either way you take that, uh, whether it's the spirit who's expressing a jealous desire for us, or he 
which would be uh, presumably God the Father desiring, jealously desiring the Spirit which He made to dwell in us. Uh, either way you take that, you're attributing this jealous desire to the Lord. Uh, jealousy being a, by and large, a, a positive, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a virtue in the Bible of uh, protective love for what is yours. But the Lord is jealous because Israel is, jealous for Israel's attention because Israel is His bride, Israel is His son, Israel is his daughter in different different contexts. To say he's jealous means that he's protective of them and protective of that that unique relationship that he has with them. Um, I, I don't know which, I haven't looked at the Greek uh, carefully to know which uh, translation is the best, but in either case you have the Lord desiring us and our attention and his, his jealousy, which sometimes expresses itself as wrath. It's the same same terminology in the Hebrew, wrath and jealousy. If it expresses itself as wrath when the people of God turn their attention away from the Lord, uh, then He desires uh, His desire for our love and our loyalty. His jealousy for that uh, love and loyalty expresses itself in anger. And then there are the continuing themes of reversal that we see within the book of James. The be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The same themes that we see within chapter one, um, the themes related to the poor and the rich in chapter two, and then we'll see them again in chapter five. These seem to be a consistent note that sounds throughout the book that once you truly know the parameters of the situation as it is presented in terms of God's truth, you will assess your situation in a radically different fashion. And that leads to a trans, in part, it leads to a transvaluation of values. And in other respects, it is a recognition of what is approaching that day that is coming that will lead to a reversal of fortunes, which again is a, a consistent theme that we see in the events of God's deliverance in Scripture. Putting things together that we've been talking about, the antidote to these to demonic wisdom, the antidote to these desires that create this strife and uh, conflict is prayer in humility. And those, in some ways, that's a, uh, uh, that's a tautology. Of course, prayer is an expression of humility. Prayer is an expression of our neediness and our the fact that we have to turn outside ourselves for everything, that everything that we have and are comes from the Lord. And so that humble attitude of prayerfulness is the way of humility. It's the way of heavenly wisdom. And it's the way of Jesus that's going to, uh, uh, that actually triumphs in spite of appearances. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.